Hello and welcome to the 79th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Eternal Step by Once More with Gusto. Philip, who are you? Hello. And what do you do? Uh, I'm uh, Philip Pardo. I'm potentially the, the other half of Once More with Gusto. We're a two-man studio uh, based in the UK. Um, and I think my probably main role is is being in charge of design, um, so initially the game's design, and then pretty much picking up any kind of flag um, that comes along, because obviously um, my other team member, Paul, he is primarily animation and art, um, and also he does some programming. So essentially, if if there's something that we he's doing and he's busy, I'll I'll try and pick up something elsewhere. But primarily, I, I deal with design um, and the day to day aspects of of running once more with gusto. Brilliant. See, that's the first question. Nice and easy. We start off nice and easy, then it gets worse. Uh, Not in a bad way, but just more complex. So, that's the next question, number two. A little bit tougher. How did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games, as opposed to board games, which are also very popular these days, you might have noticed? Well, yeah. um, (laughs) I I think I, I would love to make a board game. I just, I personally don't play enough board games to, yeah, but to sit down and... Though a lot of developers sort of nod and go, yeah, I, some of them do play a lot. I do play a lot myself. Uh, yeah. Don't get me wrong, I mean, I was, we were chatting earlier before we recorded the show, I was playing Halo 5 the other night, but, you know, over the weekend I'll be probably playing Forbidden Stars again. Um, but that's a six-hour board game. I'm not kidding. Uh, what? <laughs> it's, it's not for the faith of heart. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it is brilliant, but... Yeah, it's <laughs> oh, it's a corker. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. So you you'd love to make, but you you made your start making video games. How? Because I think this is a very interesting story, very inspiring one. But carry on. Yeah, um, I think for for us, um, it's I don't know, it, it's not straightforward. I think no. we we originally um, obviously went to university. I studied game design. Um, my uh, team member. Paul, he studied animation. We kind of met at university, become friends, and then kind of carried on from there. Uh, the story started, I entered a game design competition, won the game design competition, and then we thought, off the back of that, when we left university, we started up a company. For whatever reason, um, I think through a series of bad choices and bad business advice um, and just general making mistakes, we kind of failed at starting and running that company. So, that brought an end to it um and as on towards the end of it i had to up and leave from middlesbrough uh i'm originally from wolverhampton so i had to up and leave from middlesbrough because my, my mother got really diagnosed with cancer so it kind of put a hiatus on everything uh a couple of months later my mom passes away so i then decide that you know i'm gonna have to put game design and building and all that type of stuff on on hold end up getting a normal job um i ended up working uh a few other jobs ended up getting the job working for the police which i still currently do um so that's my day-to-day job and then i think a couple of years later me and paul obviously still friends i basically said i've got this job i'm pretty secure 
in the job, it you know, it, it's paying my way. He had saved up enough money to quit his job and practically live for about a year off the, the proceeds of his job. So I said to him, I've got this idea. It's for a very simple game at the point. At that point, it was a very simple game. It, it spiraled into what it is now. But uh, at that point, it was a very simple game. And I said, do you want to give it a go? Um, he said, yes, let's go for it. Um, so at that point, you've got a designer who has a Monday to Friday day job, um, which is quite demanding. You've got an animator uh, and an artist both sat there, and neither one of us knows any programming. So that was the other the other brilliant thing. So literally from the point that we started, which was about 14 months ago, so I think if, if you're official get into the game industry. We started development of Eternal Step about 14 months ago. So we had to learn programming, deal with our day jobs. Um, he also lives about an hour and a half away, so we do a lot of communicating uh, online. Um, and that's pretty much how we we got into it. It was a, a crazy start from having literally no programming knowledge. Neither of us have learned programming. Um, so it was literally, this was a, you know, seat by the braces type of approach and, and go for it and um, 14 months later we released uh, Eternal Steps which was was a monumental moment I don't think it's quite hit us that we've we've done it and we've got a game released because it's just it's been years since we've both been wanting to release a game so I'd probably say that's our official move into the, the game industry probably not as straightforward as, as some but that's pretty much where we came from and how we are where we are now. You'd be surprised the different stories I've heard since doing this show for over two years now, just a little over two years. In fact, we hit our two-year anniversary two weeks from now. Hoorah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you. Um, and we have a variety of stories, all sorts of people. I'm just curious. Um, you said it hadn't learned programs, so what tools did you use? What languages? Was it C-sharp? Is it, C, uh, is it Unity and C Sharp, or is it C++ and other compilers? What did you do in the end? We we did some research. Um, we, we looked around engines. We, we practically looked around for the easiest engine um, to try and learn coding. We ended up settling on a HTML5 engine uh, called Construct2, um, which I think is a great tool if you have no programming knowledge, um, because obviously we managed to make a game out of it. Um, it's it's a very easy and simple way of of getting to grips with the basics of of coding because it you know a lot of it is visual um, aids. So rather than typing in a, a class or the character, you know you you would have an image of the character and it would be you know, the effects and the, the abilities like moving and all that would be attached to it. So it allows you to get to grips with the processes of, of coding very quickly. Um, and then as we became more comfortable with that, we we branched out and started uh, messing around with, with the code and ideas and what we can and can't do and, and what the engine could do. I think we've, we've I'd probably say we've pushed the engine because it's, it's only a small engine, it's a construct too. It's not. I think it, it is for indie developers that are, are getting a foot in the door and moving on up. Um, but I think we've we've certainly pushed it. I think quite quite a lot and quite hard. And there's there's been many times that we've had to go back in and try and you know manage the memory better and cut down on the resources and, and 
tweak the engine so that it, it makes the game run as smooth as it can because the nature of eternal step is it's quick reflexes so the worst thing you can have is the game suddenly stall or stop um so that's that's where we set although we we did some research um and we thought because of the time frame we only had paul only had about a year a yearish and a bit worth of money really so we had to pick an engine that we could basically pick up quickly so we, we settled for construct 2 as being the engine okay interesting i mean normally it's unity that's what i hear from people they go oh yeah it's unity and a bit of c sharp actually quite a lot yep. of c sharp but that's the pairing between the two i've found um so interesting you went for for that i haven't heard of that actually um i have to look into it myself but uh and that's also there's game maker as well which many yeah, games that, that was the other one yeah, yeah. we were uh, contemplating because you know that was released under Humble Bundle the other week. You probably don't, but it was. It was. Ah, yeah. we missed that opportunity then. Yeah, I should have told great. you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I picked it up for a tenner. Yay! Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I do love Humble Bundles, but uh, that was a bonkers one. Simon Byron sort of flagged it on, uh, on Facebook and said, look, you can get this. The same tool they used to make Spelunky. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um next time. next time i'm sure there will be a next time so okay so you're obviously you're very you've got some history there you actually studied game design but yep. interesting enough you went off and to do other things um proper jobs in inverted commas as yeah. as our parents would say, um, or indeed uncles or whoever, our elder 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 people that uh, think they know better. Um, but uh, okay, well that's that's a, an interesting start. And um, based on you know your creators now, the pair of you, and um, so as a creator, you must have found yourself influenced by something or some things. Well, what would they be? Do you think? What would you cite to cite as something that you find itself being drawn to more than anything? Um, I think I've, I've, I've played games since probably the age of five. Um, I've had many, many consoles. I've primarily been a console person. Really? Um, Could you tell me yeah. your first one, may I ask? I love asking this stuff. I like um, getting into history. My, my, first, my first ever console, my, my dad brought it for me when I was five, um, I'd shown no interest in games at all until that point. I, I didn't even understand what they were. No. Um, and he brought me a Commodore 64. So that, right. that was my entry into the, the world of, of gaming. And I remember sitting, sitting and playing, um, what was it? Flimbo's Quest for many, right. many hours. Um, yeah, so that was my first kind of introduction. And then pretty much after that, we moved up. I had a Commodore for many, many years. Um, then it went to a Mega Drive eventually. Right. Uh, and then from obviously a Mega Drive again, many years. It then moved to a, a PlayStation. Right. You didn't uh, do the Saturn thing then. No, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that reaction. Pause. <laughs> no, no. Why would you do that? No. Like, hey, come on. Yeah. You might have like you might have like up and down to shoot 'em ups because they were great on the Saturn. Um, they were, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so then I, I went from PlayStation, PlayStation Two, Xbox, and then it's got to the point now where uh, I, I am the age where I am, and I can buy my own consoles. I pretty much have every console under yeah. this one, and 
a PC now. So uh, yeah. I, I can remember my first ever PC I, I brought myself. Um, I finished school. I then got a job literally the next day, saved up money and brought my first PC. From, uh, PC World, it was like a rubbish, uh, you know, off the off the shelf kind of. I think it was an e-machine, so right. it, it could barely, oh, barely do anything. Um, but yeah, that was my first like PC, and that just opened opened everything up. And then obviously, I is this in the early nineties or mid nineties? Or yeah, that, that would have been it. The, the mid nineties, that would have been. Yeah, I, I can empathise with a lot of that. I mean, I wasn't a console person. I, I my first job, I remember sixteen. I got a, a, a Sega Master System. <laughs> thinking, thinking. I don't know why. I was only 16 at the time, so sue me. But thinking that I have a really like arcade perfect version of Outrun, I didn't know any better. <laughs> I didn't realise that did, that wouldn't happen to another two generations after that. Yeah. When the yeah. Saturn came out with the Sega Ages collection, which by yeah. the way is sublime. But anyway, um, you, you you just you just don't know. And I remember seeing watching the screen, looking at this orange blob at the bottom of the screen, thinking, "What have I done?" I spent most of my wages on this. Yeah, so my livelihood has gone. Life, what have I done? So I shunned consoles for a good decade after that. Seriously, I just went on to the ST and then the Amiga. Didn't lose out on anything, so I then got involved in the demo scene and stuff like that. It's great, lovely, fantastic stuff. But it did yeah. mean I missed out on a lot of really, really good games that period, like um, Chrono Trigger, for example. Um, I know it's not a Mega Drive game, but that's a limit it to be. Amazing. It's amazing, amazing game. By the way, listeners, you haven't played it, you must. I know it's a JRPG, yeah. but you really should. It's an exquisite game, beautifully designed, and uh, I know of many developers actually. You know, when you're going for a job, they require you to play that game in order to understand <laughs> what you mean by game design. Uh, I'm not sure if they do that anymore, but uh, they did back well, in the should. That should be on every uh, play Chrono Trigger. <laughs> yeah, have you played Chrono Trigger? Because it's out on DS now, you can just buy it on the DS, it's fine. Um, but no, and it's quite interesting, just going back to the original where you had um, I don't know, Commodore 64 there, and uh, that's quite interesting that all those machines now are dying. Yes. I've been reading, yeah, you probably know about this, all the caps are going, they're just, all the chips are dying, they're all dying. Mm. And it's sad, it's terribly sad. Yeah, yeah. There's, some, there's some great games. I remember going to my my local corner shop and being able to buy a ma- the Commodore 64 magazine with, you know, the tape of all like three or four games on it or whatever. And then going home and waiting those 25 minutes for a game to load. And then you're like, it better be good. And then, you know, like 15 minutes in, it crashes and you're like, no, I have to start again. And it was like, that, that was the beauty of uh, the Commodore 64, I felt. But there were some, some quite good games uh, on the Commodore 64. There were. So you, you've, actually, you, you've been playing games for, for decades. And that's what you believe your inspiration is, just being um, a savant of games, of like a curate, if you will, of, of yeah, like, I, I think them all this after all these years. Yeah, I think I've played, I've, I've played a lot of games. I think over over the years, my I think as I've grown up, my my tastes and things that I I love in games have certainly changed. I I come from, I wouldn't say I come from an old generation, but. I like, I think some of my inspirations are like the, the games that you can play before, you know, before the days of guides and all that type of stuff where there were things that were hidden in games and there were, there were random Easter eggs and 
potentially things that wouldn't wouldn't be explained like you know even like with street fighter 2 on the arcade cabinet you know moves were purposely left off when on the arcade cabinet so that you know people would watch people play and then pull off this move and go oh, how, how have they done that move and i i like that kind of history that that games has had where letting the player try and fathom things out or or experience things and not not holding them by the hand and i think as a as I've gone on, I, I love the experiences. Um, some of my favourite game series is like Uncharted, and I love the the movie-like aspect and the the thrill ride of a game. But I also like games that don't hand you everything, or you know, do purposely hide things and, and make you figure it out. And I think that's, I think I've got to the point in my life where I I quite like playing games like that. So things like roguelikes and and things like that, I think have have picked my personal taste because they're games that you can watch as well. And I think in the days of Twitch, that's that's a massive plus is to have a game that's that's watchable and you can watch someone play a roguelike and many, many times they get a different experience, you know, and the, the thrills and the joys of them dying over and over again or them finding something out or you knowing something they don't. And I think that's that's where my inspiration has, has moved on from like from where I want to design games. I want to design games that have those hidden moments um that aren't explained. Obviously, with the days like Game FAQ, within 15 minutes of the game being released, someone will post it. But for the person that doesn't check the internet, there'll be things in there that's, you know, that they will explore and find out organically as opposed to it being told. So I think that's, that's the growth of, of me playing games. I think that's where I've got to. And that's my influences when I design now. I want, I want those bits in my, in my games, really. So crediting the player with some intellect. What's wrong with that? Basically, that's what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, so, it's so lovely to hear. I do hear that a lot in, in, in the show now. People, developers come on and say, you know, I'm not going to tell them everything. I don't need to. They should be able to figure it out. And you know, in the days before the internet, there were games that were very complex and deep. The Ultima games being a good example. Um, yeah. Very little was explained. Very little, actually, to, to the point where it was almost impenetrable. But you just had to have a notepad next to your computer as odd as that seems but yes. um, yeah, yeah but the, the the concept you know fez was a great example of that um sure hmm. feeling of fez uh, or the maker of it but that aside um the, the game itself is an extraordinary achievement uh and uh, the fact that you had to go back to it again to say oh so that's what that bell thing was for you know <laughs> It's yeah. uh, it's just crediting players with in, with some intellect. And yeah, you seem to be knowing what you're doing. Just you know, if you don't like it, that's okay. But if you do, that's okay too. Um, yeah. All games aren't made for everyone. You can't please everyone either. Um, no. And that's fine. That's fine. I mean, you do get in, you do encounter people who can't take criticism uh, when they make stuff, and you go. Well, if you can't really take criticism, maybe you should find another profession. Yeah, uh, certainly. Certainly yeah. in the games industry, I would say. Yeah, because it, you encounter it. I mean, I've had it myself. But, uh, you know, when I've been delivering critique and, uh, yeah, got short shrift for it. And, 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 you know, personal attacks and that sort of stuff. I'm like, well, um, if you degenerated into that and actually your argument's kind of failed at this point, hasn't it? Um, but uh, I don't know why people die for emotion hoping that they will actually change my mind. But all it does is cause me to double down on my original opinion. But anyway, that aside. Um, so 
Cool. Who do you most admire in the video game industry and why? It could be a company or a person. Yeah, I think it, I think it's going to be a company. I probably it's going to be Naughty Dog. I think. Okay. Um, because I, I, everything they've done is is well, pretty much pure gold. It's, right. They, they've clearly, to me, Naughty Dog clearly have some kind of magic that happens in that studio, where you know even games like Crash Bandicoot and you know the Jack and Daxter, they're all fantastic. Then they move up to like Uncharted and the, the Last of Us, and it's kind of like looking at their progression. It's like I've, I I can't see a game that they've certainly from the Crash Bandicoot upwards that they've they've made that where you haven't gone. That's that's a good game. I, I like that game, and I think I, I would love to know the processes and the the way that they sit down and discuss things and coming out. It's like the opening of Uncharted Two on the train, like how. How would you even sit and design that or come up with the idea for that? How is that planned out? It's like, I what, love what do you the, do? Just, yeah, and also I love the fact, in that level, that the character just says, well, this, this train's long. Yeah. <laughs> it just knows. It's, it's like, yeah, oh, right, yeah. It's just, he knows he's, like, he's like laughing at you at the game with that. That is Naughty Dog. That yeah, I know it's just a line, and it's not even a gameplay mechanic, but it, it just em- embodies because they treat yeah. the uh, player with respect. I would, I would certainly agree, and I think as as naughty dog games always do that they they try and do that. They give you a, a great experience, and you know it's you know Uncharted has some of the for me, some of the best action sequences I've, I've played in the game. They are genuine wow moments. And I think from playing the game, they're genuine wow moments. But from me sitting down and thinking of the design aspect, it, it boggles my brain how how one would sit down and come up with these ideas and how that goes through a process. It's it's, it's There's clearly something that happens in Naughty Dog. And, I you know, I, I don't know what that is, but I mean, that's, that's why I admire them. They, they clearly have high standards and they have to have some kind of amazing work process or at least a good team aesthetic and, and between peers and all that, that they can constantly come out of games that are just always that good. And I think that's, that's something that's that always, you know, I'm always happy to see. And, I'm, you know, I always get excited for a Naughty Dog game because, you know, it's going to be stamped with that level of quality, and I, I, that's what I admire about them. Is that you know, it, it's difficult to try. I think in this day, especially when you're making a AAA game, to try and create a game that you want to do with the standards that you want to do, and still have that element of what makes a Naughty Dog game great. And I think they always do that, and I think that's a testament to, to clearly how the studio runs itself and how you know. It introduces people to it and how the the working conditions are and how everybody must have some kind of rapport with each other that they can keep knocking out games like that and I think that's it's great to see and I, I certainly that's why I admire that company and I you know I would I would love to be a naughty dog or at least sit down on a design session like you know when they're planning a level design or planning out something just sit down like a fly on the wall and just just watch what happens. I think mean, that's, that's as much as I'd like to do. But I think probably for in the game industry, they'd, they'd be my my favourite company. I think. Cool. Um, up there. Yeah, I 
yeah, I've huge, huge admirer of their their games. Um, Uncharted One, fantastic PS3 game. Only negative point on it is the bit with the zombies. Just leave it at that. Say anything more? We all know what I'm talking about. Bad. Anyway, (laughs) other than that, it's great. Um, But no, great answer. Wonderful stuff. And uh, final question in the first half. I know. Sad that we're coming to an end of the first half, but you know, the second half is even more interesting. Hang on there, everyone. So, what are you playing right now? It's a podcast, yeah. after all. We have to ask that question by law. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, by law. Okay. Um, Apparently. Yeah. I think I I get angry with, with myself with playing games. Is I'm, I'm one of those people that always get excited for the next thing. So I, I tend to play a game... And then as soon as someone else is released, oh, I must play it, and I end up moving on. So I have a back catalogue of a load of games that I should play and finish, but I, I never get around to. But I think the the ones that I'm playing at the moment is, I'm a big fan of JRPGs, and there's, I'd probably say there's there's not enough decent JRPGs nowadays. So I think the golden age of JRPGs has certainly gift since the PlayStation era and, and before that. But um, I'm playing Tales of uh, Stereo at the moment. Yeah, I've um, not getting. I mean, I did a preview of that at an event about six months ago, and yeah. what I played of it, it's a good tales of game. I grant you, but then again, yeah. I think they got a bit stagnant. What, what's your opinion of it? I, I I probably agree. I think I think looking at it, it's I, I don't want to say it's very it's by the numbers, but it, it's it is a very by the numbers tales game. They certainly haven't haven't tried to revigorate it in terms of bringing it up to i wouldn't say today's standards you know today's standards would be to scrap it and make it completely open world and you know 90 hour long experience and i don't think that's what a tales game is but i think they they could certainly look at borrowing some of the things that are in are in modern games i mean i'm playing tales of Asteria and there's no there's no quest log so if you pick up a side mission or something you, you still can't find and that's little things like that i think that they miss and they don't put in and you know and the the kind of like i mean i think the the battle system's always good and i think that's the strength i think just i would like to see them do slight slight modernization in terms of you know make a town bigger than two houses or you know make the environment slightly less corridorish yeah um, i think they've fallen into yeah. the trap of tales of games are like this Ergo, yeah we'll make that sort of game yeah and I think they should take cues from Zelda, the last one, you know, um, Worlds, oh God, Link Between Two Worlds. Um, anyway, yeah. um, that takes Zelda, granted, but then messes it all up by allowing you to, you know, buy equipment way ahead of time. So you, can yeah. go, you can do that dungeon now. Really? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Fine, let's go. It'll cost you, but yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah, and I think Zelda's... That was a good example of that. It's, it's always the same game, but it's always they always try to, yeah. to you know. Uh, Min- one of my favourite Zelda games wasn't even made by Nintendo. I think it's made by Capcom or at least a studio of theirs. Minish yeah. Cap. Um, Minish Cap. That's, that's probably my favourite Zelda. Yeah. The whole the whole shrinking and walking around as a as a very tiny person was was, was amazing. Sublime, sublime piece of coding. Still, still venerate. Still warm, fuzzy feelings when I think of that game. <laughs> um, one of the few Zoldas I actually finished. Sorry, everyone. 
I'm sure that's going to cause a lynch mob, right? Yeah, so there is. There's a constant, there's a permanent lynch mob outside my home with pitchforks <laughs> for various things I've said and written over the years about video games. Um, I just have to wade my way through them on the way to the shop, so it's kind of used to me now. Uh, kind of lost the energy to kind of poke me a bit. Mm. That's it. Um, no, that's not true, everyone. It's made clear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, no, uh, I do like JRPGs as well. Um, you know, we already talked about the, the pinnacle, in my opinion. One of the best in the world is Chrono Trigger to this day. It's hard to beat, hard to beat, very hard to beat. But there are some other games. I think you find it's it's the indie scene that seems to be delving into new area, new eras, and new sections or new ways of looking at those that type of game. Yeah. It's just finding them, you know, just finding them. It's the tricky part. I would certainly love to make an RPG one day, but as a, uh, a two-man dev studio, I think it's, uh, it's a way off. That's a, that's, a, that's a big ask. That's a big ask. <laughs> um, so, anything else? Uh, yeah, the, the other game that I'm um, playing off and on is, is Divinity um, Original Sin. Have you seen the is... um, new enhanced version that came out this week? Yes, I, I do believe my, my wife uh, has brought that so i think she's she's wanting to play that split screen right. on playstation 4 i believe so i'll be playing it all again um with with her but i think that's that that's the other game that i've i've been playing off and on um, as i said I, I dabble so you know last i think last week or the week before i was playing metal gear and then probably the week before that i was playing <laughs> something else and that's that's it frustrates me because I never get to see the end of a game generally, and it's and then like six months later I'll go back and go, oh, fancy playing Metal Gear again, and it's, it's just oh, I forgot what to do and I forgot yeah. where I am. It's the worst uh, thing to do that on the JRPG. You can't stop. Yeah. If you drop Especially it, when there's no quest. Log. Yeah. It's like, what am I doing here? Who's that? Why have I put all those stats into that? <laughs> Why? Oh, well, I was building up to a boss. I can't remember how to fight. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I'm uh, trying to finish. I will try to finish Divinity and Tales of Asteria before I move on to anything else. But probably, what is it, Fallout 4 is out in a couple of weeks? So yeah, that will be that then, really. This I'll year is horrible in a it brilliant is. way. But it's just horrible because I didn't play Divinity. I played the, the original games from way back. Uh, they yeah. were just general hack and slash games. They were awesome. But the new yeah, one, I didn't, I, it, it passed me by. It passed me by. I know, embarrassing, but... I was just obviously distracted by something else and shiny. Um, but now, it, now the, the, the Kickstarter for the second one came out, and one of the rewards you get for backing that second game is you get the, the original game, but an enhanced edition. I thought, oh, that wow. sounds like a plan. So I did that, and they gave me a Steam key, and now I've got the enhanced edition on my PC. Hoorah! Um, which is probably the best thing there ever, you know, to actually play the enhanced version. So you just experienced what the developer regards as the best version um so i'm very happy about that so that could be my my christmas game or it's probably going to be fallout 4 if i'm honest with myself um really strict you'll set really strict rules i must play and on launch day of fallout 4 i'll just sit there and say for hours and because i still remember the, the finishing fallout 3 i did finish it um, um, and regular listeners will know this story, but uh, I, for me, the the Bethesda um, sort of Bethesda games, or not, yeah, they're RPGs, I should say. 
I don't play them properly, I don't think. I actually <coughs> do. Yeah, get this. I get do the main quest. Oh, wow. Doggedly. <laughs> I just don't yeah. deviate. I'm just like, oh, there's a, there's a cave over there. That's nice. Can he get... <laughs> no, no, no. I've got to go. I'm going here. But there's a cave. No, really. Shut up. I'm going here. And I'll do it. And I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And finish the game. Finish the main quest. And go, cool. Now I can do all the side quests I missed before. Trouble with that is, you've saved the world. You've saved the world, right? And you go up to someone and go, great, thanks for saving the world. There's some bandits over there. Could you kill them, please? (laughs) But I'm I'm a hero. (laughs) I'm a god. See that dragon I killed? There, lying in a pit over there, and you now want me to kill some bandits? No, yeah, I can so see the issue. It's it's uh, I don't like I said I don't play them properly. <laughs> so that's it's going to happen in Fallout Four. I know it's going to happen. I'll try and yeah. resist it. That's going to happen. So it's going to be a thirty-hour so experience. What will actually happen is you'll be the first person ever to finish Fallout 4 because <laughs> you will go straight through the story. <laughs> I finished it and everyone else is like, how? How have you managed to <laughs> Chris, you're an idiot. Anyway, uh, that's the first half of the show. Thanks for sharing. Um, let's talk about Eternal Step. What is Eternal Step? Um, I think Eternal Step is a roguelike uh, tower climbing dungeon game um, in which you play a unnamed crusader uh, who fights his way through floor to floor of a tower fighting monsters that can progress, uh, get progressively harder, fighting bosses, acquiring loot to make it stronger and better, um, and then Try and fight all your way up um, until you get as, as high as you want. The game is endless, so there is there is no end, really. Um, so if you wanted to climb to floor 2000, you could. Um, so I think that's that's the main crux of the game. It's a an action game. It's, it's all about dodging, timing your attacks, blocking, um, deciding what weapon you want, what weapon you don't, picking, I, I would say, not builds, but picking items, going in, um, tweaking the game to, to how you want to play it, really, uh, and then try not to die, I would say, is pretty much Eternal Step. It's kind of story of life, really. <laughs> yeah, totally. Dodge blows, you know, yep. metaphorically as well as actual. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's a little bit of it remind me of um, 
Dark Souls, if I may. Um, yeah. Some yeah, of the some of the combat is like, yeah, you may think you're all powerful, you've got these amazing weapons, but you've still got to dodge. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing about Dark Souls is that it's not about so much about what you're using, it's how you use it. And uh, but this is it's it is a roguelike. In other words, you, you, it's an extraordinary amount of replayability. Could you? This is not the first question, by the way. But I want you to expand on something that you didn't yeah. talk about. Is the what I call the card shop? Can you tell us about the power ups and how these cards work, please? And how that how yes. basically how that works? Yes, no problem. In a in a tunnel step uh, before you go into the the tower, uh, you have a set of books that were. In, in the law bestowed upon the, the crusader before they go in. Um, and the idea is, is that each book is a different uh, set of cards. So you've got weapon cards, armor cards, um, shield cards, and then you've got your monster cards. And basically what you do is you pick one from each. So you pick your weapon, you pick your, your armor and your shields, and then you pick a monster card. And the weapons range from, you know, fast, slow, or heavy. And then uh, what you do is you, once you equip the card, you obviously use that card and you go into the tower. Um, the monster cards change certain aspects. So they, they bestow the, the crusader like random effects, like, uh, the archer card will fire an arrow across the screen. Uh, the slime card will, you know, produce spikes from your body when you hit. So it's kind of a way of tweaking your kind of, uh, play that you want. So if you wanted, you know, some, like um, the helping hand card has a minion that follows you around and punches enemies. And it was trying a way of adding customization. I think that was the main thing with Eternal Step is we tried to add as much customization as we can. That's why you pick your cards as you go into the tower. And then when you're in the tower, obviously you acquire new cards and then you've got the chance of either using the card. So if it's a much better weapon, you can think, well, I'm going to take that with me. But by doing that, you lose the chance of going back into the tower with that card or you've got the option of storing it. So you think, well, I'm almost dead. That weapon's amazing. I'm going to store that for my next run. So then you can store the card in the book. And then when you go in the next time, all the cards that you've stored are in there. Um, so that when you go in the second time, you've got probably a slightly better chance because you can equip yourself with better gear and give you your odds um, higher risk of you know, not dying or not being stabbed in the face this time because you've got that extra bit of power. So I think that was that. that's pretty much how the the loot card system works. We wanted to tweak it slightly from a normal, normal roguelikes where it's usually the items there, you pick it up or you go to a shop and spend money and pick up an item. We, I, I didn't want to do that. Um, as much as I love that type of system, I, I wanted a system where the player has the option of, of storing it so that every death is at least some progress as opposed to most roguelikes where it's death, that's it, it's gone. Um, so I think that's, that's where the loot card system came from. Excellent. That's that. I, I just, I think people need to know more about that depth because this game has an extraordinary amount of depth, uh, and it's such nuance, such detail, and uh, to create these cars and these crossovers, and these, you can create extraordinary combos with them if you're careful. Yes, clever about yeah. It. I think uh, obviously because the you've got the card system. So, for instance, there's a an armor in in the game which is called the beefy plate, which is is very high in defense, but has rubbish stamina. Um, but the problem is, is then on the shield, there's a shield called the Duracell shield, um, where while you're blocking, it recharges stamina. So then 
by equipping those two, it kind of negates some of the, the penalties of wearing the beefy plate, because at least you can recover stamina quicker by blocking. Um, and then obviously with some weapons, some weapons use a lot of stamina, so obviously a Duracell shield would be good. So I think if you were to equip something like a dagger, which uses very little stamina, with a beefy shield and a Duracell, uh, a beefy plate and a Duracell shield, then you've kind of built yourself a tanky, quick, stabby type crusader that goes into terror and then there's a level of skills that you can get which are also on cards that you loot and the way that the skill works is i ideally wanted every single time you end a floor you have a decision to make and the decision is a strategic one and the idea that you can take a weapon might have a skill on it flurry for example um so the idea is now it yes it's an awesome weapon but it's got a skill on it so do you take the skill and equip it to the weapon you've got which will destroy the weapon do you store the skill, which will destroy the weapon, or do you take the weapon and lose the skill? Um, so it's, it's kind of like that strategic balance. Uh, and then obviously, if you can equip a skill with beefy, beefy plate, a dagger, like say flurry, and you've got a, you've got a quick attacking build, but you've got the, the stamina yeah. to negate some of the, the defense rather than going for a light build. So you might pick like a dagger freedom, which is a very low defense, but has very quick stamina regen. So that's that's what we wanted to do. Pretty much, you've got a lot of the normal weapons, but every rare weapon or rare piece of armor or something does something unique. We didn't just want to have iron sword, gold sword, you know, diamond <laughs> sword, and and then be just stronger. We wanted it to for the player to think, well, okay, I'm going to go into the terror, but I'm going to equip this, 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 and that, and then have this kind of build essentially. So when I go in, um, I can tackle it, and then. Yeah, I've I've watched a lot of people play it on Twitch. That people have played it on Twitch, and it's it's been interesting to see that people will need, kind of gravitate towards certain things because they prefer them, and they'll mix it around, and it, it's got the desired effect, I think, in that essence. But yeah, so that's that's the way we, we wanted to do that. And as the game goes on, we we plan to obviously add more weapons and stuff, so it'll get even more of a decision, like what what do I do type of thing. So that's that's going forward, but. That was essentially the idea we wanted to do. Brilliant. So here's the first proper question now. Thanks for drawing that out. I just want to get so everyone understands how the, all facets of this game before we go into dive deep into the detail. So uh, there's a minimal UI to the total yep. step. How did this come about, and what challenges did you face when you when you created it? Yeah, I think the when me and Paul sat down and and thought the idea for for Eternal Step, I mean, I I originally pitched the idea to him as literally you climb floors and you kill stuff, um, and he was like, yeah, I think I I, I can do that. That sounds easy enough. Um, and then through a couple of months after that, I was like, well, we should add this and we should add this and we should add that. And then he was like, oh, no, it's getting really complex. But I think the the original kind of um, idea for for that was was born from it and i think eternal i think eternal step is is what we we wanted to try and craft in the idea that we wanted to create a game that was that was fast paced in in essence with that and then with the the item system and then the card system and then all those type of um bits added on top was where we we wanted to take it really um and then 
I've lost where I was now. What was the question? Just talking again? about talking about the EOI and the fact that yeah. there's very little. I mean, for example, just to play a nose, when you have health potions, they're on your character. Yeah, it's not a big sort of flashing chart or big you know inventory screen. Is what you have on you is actually on your character. If you want to know yeah. how many potions you've got? Look at the dude you're controlling. That's yeah. what I want you to talk about. How did that come about? I mean, it's seems so obvious, but I haven't really seen it before. Yeah, I think, um, as I was saying, I, I think it came from, like, the... I think the idea was we wanted to create fast-paced action, and as much as I love Dark Souls and, and Bloodborne and, and games like that, when I'm playing the game, I, I'm always consciously looking into the top left corner. Um, and not that that would get me killed most of the time, but sometimes it would, it would cause you a few issues because you're constantly looking, well, where's my health or... Yes. Any potions so I think the the idea that I went into it and I, I said to Paul is I, I want to try and create a way that that everything that you need to know about the person is is on screen. So you don't have to go through a menu system or look into the corner or do that. I, I want it visually to, to appear on him. And I, I took inspiration from games like, like Dead Space. I, I love the fact that you can look at his health on the back of his suit. It's it's a fantastic way of, you know, from looking at the character, because what you need to be doing is dodging attacks. Well, it works for Doom, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Come on! And so, that, yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's where it was born from, I think. Uh, I, I said to Paul, you know, can we have the potions on the character so you can see? Um, and then with the no idea of the health bar, we, we gave visual clues, um, you know, blood being everywhere on the floor, you know, the the edges go red and then the music stops and you hear a heartbeat. So that's the visual clue that you're about to die. Um, and I tried to keep it like that. And the, the other thing in the back of my head was when I was designing Eternal Step was if people stream the game, then if there's nothing on the screen UI-wise, because obviously streamers put, you know, banners and whatever else they need or chats and whatever else. And sometimes, obviously, they have to reposition themselves depending on where the UI is. So I, that was the other aspect of it. So I wanted it to focus on everything you need is on the guy. So look at the guy, concentrate on what you're doing. Don't worry about, you know, looking in the corner of a screen or whatever else. So then that you can focus on what's important. And then the other thing was if people do stream it and do want to play it because it's, it's that type of game, then they don't have to worry about rejigging anything on their side, I think. And that was that was the idea that I went to, to Paul with. Yeah, and it works. I believe it works anyway um, because it's... It focuses your attention on where it's supposed to be. Yeah, I, I will say that that from people that play it, when we were testing it initially and everything, nobody generally ever sees the fact that there's potions on his belt. That's why we had to we had to say, like in the tutorial, that your potions are here on his belt because nobody noticed that because obviously it's not not it's usually not, done. No, it's not. It's just like no, no, no. That's just this. this um, uh, Avatar, it just doesn't change. The only only time an avatar changes in a video game is when you're playing a hack and slash Diablo clone, and when you go to the shop and you put a new weapon on, and then it suddenly changes, and that's fine. But you don't have your perishables, is what I call yeah. them, on 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 about your character. That's the you know, it's absurd. Yeah. You know, it's absurd that. to think that if if someone was to walk around in real life, they would have how many potions they have attached them. Um, and I think that's, it, 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 it was difficult to point out to people because, and once you point out to people, everyone was like, 
oh yeah, that that makes perfect sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, and then the the other thing that kept cropping up was there's no health bar, um, which which is fine, but you know a lot of games nowadays tend not to have a health bar. Some games don't have a health bar; they have other clues, and we we didn't want to detract your attention away from from you know dodging arrows or dodging a bomb or a skeleton is about to impale your face. We we wanted you to focus on what you were doing, and I think. Once people played it a few times, they they caught onto that idea, and then they kind of settled into it. And then I, I don't think you know from what I've seen of most people playing it, they they don't care that there's no health bar um, generally. Um, and then obviously with the potions, you know, once they realise there's they're on his belt, then you know at a quick glance, you know, in a potion you got. So I think it worked in the end. Yes, level design. Uh, yep. These procedurally generated, I couldn't fathom. No, they're, they're not procedurally generated. Um, I think me me and Paul didn't want to do procedurally generated in sense. We wanted to go more the kind of like a mini Bloodborne-esque route in the idea that the game picks a random floor for you. So we create a load of layouts. I think currently there's something like 146 layouts or something that the game could possibly pick. But it depends on where you are in the tower what type of floors that you get so the the floors basically work so when you get to a floor it'll chuck out a random one to you so then as you're playing the game you might come across that floor again but so the idea is is if you struggle on a particular floor you know you've kind of learned where the enemies are you know what's on that floor you might know where you know there's some enemies around that corner or those archers are in that corner and we wanted the player to eventually get better and better and better at at floors that they, you know, they're struggling against rather than having it completely random and it always being a struggle in that, you know, you can't, you can't have a tactic, um, if it's just random all the time. So it's kind of like, at least if you walk onto a floor and you recognize it, right, I know this floor, the slimes are there, the archers are there, I know my, my setup. And then through that, they, they progressively get better at the game. Um, and the idea with it works is, I think for like, obviously the first 20 floors you've got, three types of enemy and after floor 20 it chucks more enemies at you like new ones but what the game does is it still reuses the floors previously um so you it doesn't cut you out of any of the floors so once you get to quite high heights it's using a, a massive mix of layouts that you could potentially have the way that we combated the idea of it's using previous floors so you know people get too used to the tactics is i think in the the euro game a build depended on um where we got we got to and all that type of stuff. I think the idea is enemies will learn new new moves. So slimes, for instance, once they get to floor ten, once you get past floor ten, they have an ability to go under the floor and pop up under you. Which obviously it, you're used to that now, but they've learned a new tactic, so you have to readjust yourself slightly. So it doesn't make those floors stale. Once you get past floor twenty, the archers will have homing arrows. These skeletons that normally try and hit you three times have a charge so they can come great distances now and try and hit you and it was about slowly adding so that previous floors don't become too stagnant in the fact that enemies will learn new tactics and little little things and nuances and they go oh, crap they've learned something new i wasn't prepared for that but then it obviously allows that the new floors to be reintroduced as well so that, you know by floor 90 or whatever you've, you've potentially got like a hundred layouts that the game could pick for your next floor and i think that that's what we wanted to do we didn't want it completely random so that we want people to go in and get better. I think that was the main thing. I I wanted the game to be structured so that once you go in, 
eventually you'll get better at the game and you'll get something because I think ideally that's why people play games is that sense of achievement they want to achieve something and as much as I like roguelikes I think they can be massively disheartening in the fact that you know you've tried and you've died again and now all that progress and all that effort is gone and there's no sense of achievement or reward um, and obviously when you do beat it you it's yay but it's, I think it's soul destroying sometimes so I didn't want to turn myself to be that. I thought I wanted every death to like slightly be better than the last. Um, so that's how the floors are picked. So they're, they're more layouts and they are randomly generated. Well, that leads on. Fantastic answer. And uh, I suspected that was the case because I hear people say, oh, well, is it? You know, they think it is. It gives the illusion of that. But it's not at all. Uh, it's, there's another algorithm going on and now you've explained it to us. So that's really appreciate that because... Also feeds into my next question is, you know, roguelikes taking the concept of New Game Plus to the nth degree, don't they? That's the point yeah. of them. So what does Eternal Step do to encourage repeat play? You've already hinted at this, but could you go a little bit deeper on that? Yeah, I think the, the idea with the uh, Eternal Step is it's, it's kind of like it, it is endless. So it, it's ideally how far you want to go with the game if you really like the game and you want to carry on i mean the the way that the game is structured is that the enemies get progressively harder um the loot the way that it works is obviously it's randomized on floor um so obviously if you're on a higher floor the loot that will drop even though it's still a crappy iron sword for instance it could be you know anything like that's rubbish if you're on floor 90 it'll be a better iron sword than it would be on floor four so it's all, always about that progression going forward um the leveling system, uh, every time you get five levels, you spend an emblem to increase your character. So, you know, you can increase their attack, increase their stamina. Um, most of that is endless. Um, obviously, getting loose is, is pretty much endless. You constantly fight that. Um, so it's that that to us is where we wanted to, to add the, the kind of like new game. Plus, there are also things that, that are in the game and also things that we will add, which there's rare monsters, which occasionally or can spawn and as the game goes on me and Paul are going to find up more devious ways of making these hidden so there'll be certain things that a player has to do to make one spawn um the first three are, are fairly straightforward you've got king slime willow the wisp and master hand which follows some of the enemies um and we plan to add one for pretty much every type of enemy but we've put things into the game that don't always happen or are random so that that's kind of not necessarily new game plus, but you could play the game for two or three hours, never see any of this, and then play it for 15 minutes the next day, and then suddenly you've you've come across an enemy or a floor that was like, oh, crap, I've never seen that before. Um, and then we've added random floors, because my, my other idea is that fighting all the time can be quite... Although the combat is, is quite good, sometimes it's nice to have a break from it, which is why I quite like when RPGs have side quests that aren't combat related because it's kind of like well I've been doing that for 60 hours why do you think I want to do another side quest for another two hours which is more fighting um, so we've added treasure and hell floors is what we could call them or well, treasure and evil floors so a treasure floor um, might be smash a cart which is our, our tip of a hat to Street Fighter 2 where you beat up the car um, so the idea is you smash the cart in 30 seconds if you do you get some loot another one is a puzzle floor, which we've just added, is where you know you've got to light all the lights blue 
So obviously stepping on them lights different ones and you'd have to solve the puzzle in 30 seconds. There's there's other ones which is like try not to die or stop a fusion of a, a big wisp coming. And so that those add into our kind of theory that that will keep players coming back and, and experiencing different things as they play it because um, there is no set goal. The, the end boss currently is at floor 100. So once you get past floor 100, we don't introduce anything new currently. That will obviously change as we, we go in because we plan to regularly update it. Um, so obviously, once you get past floor 100, if you want to go to floor 2000, you can. The enemies will scale and it will get harder and you might get the random enemies or the random floors. Um, and it's just how long you want to play it, really. We, we didn't want to put a, a cap on it, in essence. We didn't want to have a physical end and say, right, that's it. Now replay all floors 100. Now they're just slightly harder. We just thought, well, just let the character play and carry on. Let them carry on developing their character and getting loot and experiencing things and, and seeing how high they can get rather than sticking them to a normal one to hundred. So we're hoping one day, eventually we'll see someone post on Twitter, like they died on floor 4,685. I think me and Paul will be, you know, awestruck by the fact that someone's played that long. <laughs> but that's what we hope. That's what we hope is that, you know, it's that idea that, you know, you might challenge your, your friend, you know, let's get to, I challenge you to get to the highest floor and someone posts, you know, I'm on floor 200, I'm on floor 150, right, that's it. Or someone out there is so dedicated that they want to set the record for the highest floor ever. So that's, we just put it in and said, let, let players go loose with it, really. And that was, that's the kind of idea for our, in brackets, new game plus. So. Cool. Uh, that's, that's what I got from the playing it. I'm not particularly great. Uh, again, I get distracted by shiny things. That, and I'm a video game journalist, which means that we play lots of games that are generally bad at them. Uh, <laughs> but final question for you is yep. to do with boss battles. My okay. personal uh, favourite gaming moment in my gaming experience, which is quite storied, is uh, taking down Nefarian in World of Warcraft. So this is close oh, yeah. to my heart. Yeah, well, me and 39 yeah. other people taking down an extraordinary boss. Um, he's not as bad as he was now. He's quite, he's quite tame. But back then, it was not impossible. How we did it, I don't know. But we did. And yep. uh, I just want to ask, the boss battles, they, they focus on, a lot of the time, pattern memorising. Not entirely. Not entirely your defence. Yep. But there's a lot of pattern memorising going on. Um, so were they inspired by MMO raid bosses, or is it just a boss from JRPGs or something? And if so, no, I, how have you altered them to a single-player experience? Or what were they inspired from? Because they're, they're quite fun. Yeah, I think you've, uh, you've, you've nailed it there. They, they come from MMOs. I, I, I love MMOs. And as I, I was a, as they phrase, a vanilla WoW player. Um, and some of the, the fights and everything like you know, I can remember doing with my guild uh, some of the Leech King fights and some of the mechanics and some of the stuff that you you do in those raids. It's just this is ridiculous. It's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous yeah, it, dance. It, well, yeah, why are you standing there? Yeah, it is. It is completely ridiculous, but it's so beautiful when it all works. And you think yeah. that, and so that was thought that we have to. I want to do fights like that i want the player to sit there and think right this is what i do this is what i have to do and this you know rather than having um i mean we do do it boss three doesn't have patterns um just to 
just to throw you yes. off. Uh, yes. So we won't always do it, but um, the idea was to have something unique that each boss does in type of a pattern. You know, boss one is purely patterns. Um, boss two, there's there's something you have to do with something to beat the boss. So it's kind of like it adds the patterns, uh, more like a bullet hell style uh, pattern that changes around. But there's a specific mechanic. Boss three is no mechanic. Uh, there's no patterns. And then, so it's more like a, a straight up fight. And then obviously boss four is pretty much everything. It's probably your worst nightmare. That that The way that that boss is tailored, it has nine attacks that it can do and it can pick them up complete. Each one is a pattern or um, a set move. So you can learn the individual nine moves, but the boss can pretty much throw them at you at random. So about learning that and be, but yeah, they are completely lifted pretty much from MMOs. That's where the influence comes from. And I, cause I love that. And I think tailing it for a single player, like the, the first boss, uh, Rhiannion, um, who in law was, was, you know, a, a Valkyrie. Um, but she, she pretty much fights, uh, with the patterns. We, we wanted to create, I wanted to create a bomberman moment in the first boss. And I think tailoring it to a single player experience is the idea is to give them patterns, but try and keep it simple. So, you know, with the Bomberman thing, it, it's quite easy straight away to figure out, right, this is what's going on. And we, we decided to have the tell system, which comes from like MMOs as well, specifically Wildstar lately, which I think Wildstar does a fantastic job of patterns. Um, so we, we put those in, and so obviously as you're playing through the game, you're learning the fact that we'll stay out of orange things for one. You know, if something's orange, stay out. Of it. So we're teaching the player through that who, who might not necessarily play MMOs or understand that, you know, red stuff on the floor is bad. Um, so then by the time they get to the first boss, it, it incorporates all those elements, and I think that's that's what we did. We tailored it, and then when you get past that, we start inter- introducing a bit of bullet hell, which prepares you for the next boss. Um, kind of thing where you know enemies can fire loads of projectiles at you and stuff like that. And it's kind of like educating you that way, so that when you get to the boss, you kind of have a, an idea. And that's I think hey, we we scaled the idea of a massive forty man raid down to a single player experience. It's kind of like create the the MMO elements and the, the fun of that, but then tailor it into someone who might not necessarily play MMO, and then work around the idea that the patterns are very simple or interesting um i think the the proper bullet hell one is the halloween boss that we've got in the game currently which he only comes once a year um but there's i threw in another mechanic for that which i think people i've heard people love it but hate it at the same time and it can be quite frustrating um i think people understand as well is i, I think there's a, a common misconception is the idea that jack-o'-lantern you have a fight is all bullet hell pretty much. So it's the idea of you need to dodge, essentially. You hit him, and then when he gets to about half health, he creates a maze. And then the idea is is he's running towards his pumpkin, or his face is floating towards his pumpkin. And you've got to try and navigate the maze to get to the pumpkin. Um, doing so will then crack his pumpkin. Um, if you don't, he gets a... I think people assume he resets fully, so he gets all his health back. That's, that's not true. He only gets a portion of his health back. So then the next time you kill him, he'll go into the maze a lot quicker or when you get to that point. And then obviously when he does it again, he'll only get a portion back. So eventually he'll go into the maze a lot quicker. Um, but I think most people get like, oh, with the maze. But obviously they're having fun trying to navigate a maze. And then after one or two attempts, they'll, they'll nail it. And then 
you know, they'll go into the fight with that. And that's that's like another raid mechanic. It's one of those things where, you know, from like playing it with a 40-man raid, it's kind of like you will die a million times, but you will learn each time you die that, right, this is what we do, this is what I do, this is where I move, this is where I stand. And so that's that's what we wanted, a, the same kind of experience in Eternal Step. Um, but yeah, I think people like the maze, but then hate it at the same time. So a love-hate relationship, I think, that mechanic. But I wanted something that was completely different. I didn't want... I wanted something that throws you in there and oh, crap, I'm, I'm never getting amazed now. What's, what's this about? It's like, so I think that's what we want to do with our bosses. We want to add some fun and variety. They, and I think going forward, we'll always make sure that the bosses is something different than just, you know, a straight up, you know, whack it till it's dead type of thing. We wanted something that's it's usually unique to each boss. And it makes it for a much, much more interesting game and a much more rewarding game experience. This is what I was trying to, this is what the purpose of that question was, is that it's once you face them, they're not impossible, but they are an, uh, an engaging challenge to have. Yeah, I've, I've loved watching people on Twitch. There was, there's one guy, actually, who's done a YouTube video. It's Sammer, I think his name is. And I think the YouTube video is called some like the hardest boss I've ever faced in my life. And it's him fighting the first boss, and I think it's about an eight-minute video of him fighting the first boss. And... I think at the end, he actually manages, spoilers, he actually manages to, to kill the boss. And his reaction was generally one of the the, the, the happiest moments of me doing games. Because, you know, that's that's why I originally want to do it. I want you to have some kind of reaction and experience or something. You know, I want want you to sit there and get that rush of adrenaline. And he, he like, jumped up from his seat and he was like, oh, my God, yes, yes, yes. And I was like, that's, that's, that's it. That's what, that's what playing games is. It's that in a nutshell and you've experienced it and I'm, I'm happy that my game has, has allowed you to experience that. It's that you've achieved something. It's not been handed to you. You've, you know, you've not looked it up. You've not cheated your way through it. You've constantly come back. You've been defeated, but you know, the, the exhilaration and the happiness that you're showing now is exactly why I wanted to create Eternal Seven. It's exactly why I want to create games. It's to give you that, yeah. that yeah. emotion that I think it's difficult to get. You know, it's, our lives are, you know, stressful and and dare I say dull at times. So it's it's allowing you to come out of that little comfort zone and physically achieve something. And, and his reaction was exactly what what I wanted. And I've seen a few people do it where they've killed the boss, the boss, and they've gone, "Oh my god, I've killed it! I've killed it!" Yes, and I was like, "That's it. That's that's gaming in a nutshell." And I'm, that's reconfirms why I wanted to do it and that's that's all that I ever wanted to do. So the fact that some one person has had that reaction is enough for me really. And it's kinda of like that's that's why I want out of games. That's that's why I want people to experience our games, you know, get that rush and that sense of achievement. And that's that's why I wanted I wanted to create a roguelike that gave you a sense of achievement and that's that's pretty much what I've tried to do with Eternal Step. Yes. And if you achieved that and um it's it's an extraordinary game and people need to experience it and play it uh, while they're 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 in between bouts of Fallout Four. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. When when you finish the main story, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you get that tweet from me, uh, like you know, next month, I'm like hey, you finished it, Chris? Yeah, great. Yeah, great. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Have you done lead? No, I didn't do any of the side quests. No, no, yeah. not even yeah. the, not even that. No, I'll look. I'll look forward to seeing that. 
they have to release. Done it, way. Done. <laughs> it's a bit, uh, liked it, bit short though. Stunned yeah. pause. <laughs> 20 hours play. Go me! <laughs> That's a record. <laughs> Uh, but uh, like I said, you, you can't finish Eternal Steps, so I can't do that. Can't say oh, I'm finished. Um, it, it's your, it, as I said, it's your personal, it's your personal struggle. It's it's yeah. where you've, it's you it's know, me. You've got to it's something it. I've got to face up to and deal with in, in my own special way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, Eternal Step is currently out. Could you remind me what platforms it on? I've written down here Windows, PC, Mac, and Linux, but I don't believe that's true. Is that true? Yes, it's Windows, it PC. Yeah, Windows, Mac, and Linux. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, that's what it should be. That's what our publishers put it out. Of. So, yeah. Well, as far as I'm aware, we have three versions. So, we have a <laughs> Mac, Linux, and PC version. Um, so, that's what should be out there, yeah. Excellent. I'm, I'm happy to hear. It was done on HTML5-based um, system, so why shouldn't it be? Um, yes. It, it always amazes me when people say, I've written in HTML. Sorry? What? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, wait. You mean five, not one. Yes, yeah. not not one. Okay. Be impressive in one, I think. That would be, how will you do that? I do not know, but I'm sure there's probably yeah. not a way to do that. It will just click onto a JavaScript. There you go, that's done. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> that would be HTML1. Um, Philip, it's been fantastic having you on. Thank you very no, much. My pleasure. No problem. To sharing your, your experience and knowledge and Great detail about the Eternal Step. It's been fantastic. And uh, you're more than welcome to come back and talk about uh, whatever venture you go, go into next after Eternal Step. I'm sure there'll be something. We're currently cooking. Yeah. Yes, there is. I, I, I can give you a clue. I'm, I'm reading the complete histories of uh, Grim Fairy Tales. So. Ah. Brothers so, yeah. Grimm, eh? Be. Yes. Brothers Grimm. Stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's some, that's some um, mm, meaty stuff. So, okay, <laughs> on that note, no doubt. So, obviously, from that, you're building a space venture game. Brilliant. That, well, that yes, makes, totally, that makes, yes. Yeah. Set, set in the Brothers Grimm universe. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, uh, do go out there. It's out on Steam. Uh, just go up and buy it at Total uh, Step and, and also uh, Green Man Games and stuff like that. It's all available and all good stores and not so good ones as well. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on, Philip. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer who listens to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Bye!